Patrick comes to my car, he pulls open my visor, and he shouts into my car, you are going to put us out of business if you continue driving like that, and walks off. Welcome to my Beyond Victory podcast. And today, once again, we have a very special guest. 2009 Formula One world champion, Jensen Button. So, of course, we spoke about F1, the ups and downs, rivals like Hamilton, Alonso. I think you'll really enjoy this conversation. Jensen! How's it going? Very good. Are you in a hotel as well? Uh, yeah, I'm in a hotel room too. I'm in Berlin because I have my Green Tech Festival here, you know, for the sustainability. So we, just, so we just have management meetings and everything. It's quite a challenge in the pandemic, you know, to do events, <laughs> as you yeah. can imagine. Yeah, exactly. Oh, wow. Well, fantastic. Well, yeah, I'm amazed that F1 is, is still able to uh, function as it does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm moving so many people around. But um, and what about yeah. you? Which, where are you in the world? I'm in bedroom lockdown. <laughs> um, I'm, waiting for my, <laughs> I'm waiting for my COVID test to come back, so I'm not allowed out. So oh, good. I've seen these four walls for the last eight hours. <laughs> okay, well, that's okay. Come on. That you can't complain, though. That doesn't sound too bad. There's well, a... it's not because I've actually got a bit of sleep, which yeah, is yeah, nice. Yeah, exactly. And exactly. you know, with kids, there's, there's a lot less of that these days. You don't need to tell me. Mine are, five, <laughs> mine are five and three, so I know all about that. That's mad, isn't it? They're that old already. I mean, yeah, yeah. Our, our boy's 20 months. It's just crazy how quickly it's, time flies, eh? Yeah, yeah. So is Man, there... you want to check. You won the world championship five years ago. I know, I know. Well, you th you twelve years ago. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, I'm so old. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, there you go. That's a bit scary when we hear those numbers. Yeah. Exactly. At least we're happy, mate. Yeah. All right. So you're on holiday then today, right? Because you're away from home. Yeah, I got my short <laughs> short sleeve shirt on. I'm going to head down to the pool. My results come back, and <laughs> I'm into the track tomorrow morning. Was so. that tattoos oh, on your arm there? Was that tattoos on your arm? No. Yeah, that's my that's that's kids. new, right? Yeah. Oh, nice. I don't have my wife's name on my arm. She said not to get her name. She said that's a bad omen. So I got the kids' names instead. Nice, and nice. Money, so. nice, nice. <laughs> Yeah, but anyway, so yeah, heading into track tomorrow. Busy weekend ahead, obviously working with Sky Sports, uh, but also working with Williams. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, yeah. well, with Sky Sports, we're colleagues, um, but yeah. Williams, that will also be an interesting uh, experience, certainly. Yeah, I mean, um, senior advisor, I really don't know if that just means I'm old and I'm an advisor um, or if I'm, they, I'm a senior figure. I don't know. But um, no, I'm looking forward to it. I've been speaking a lot to the engineers there. And, the new CEO, Yoski Pito and, and George. And uh, yeah, I think good things are happening, but it needs, it needs to. It's been a tough couple of years for us. But there's been so many changes there. And with the experience that you or I would have as a driver, it's natural that you can add so much value. You've seen everything. You've seen the greatest leadership styles. You know where the talents are in the paddock. I mean, everything. The drivers, how to support them with good engineering. So uh, I'm sure you're going to be able to add so much value. Well, I think that was the strength of ours as well. It had to be when we went up against someone like Lewis. You know, you have to have those strengths of building a team around you. So yeah, it's it's. I'm hoping I'm I'm going to be helpful there, even if it's a small a small help. It's a positive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we all wish to see Williams at the front again. So if you can do your part on that, I think all the fans around the world would be happy. I will do my best for you, Nico. Yeah, thank you very much. <laughs> so, but let me speak of Williams. Let's jump right into it then. 
Thank you very much, of course, again, for taking the time. I think I'm going to skip some of the early years and I'm, I would like to kind of jump into one of the, I think, most powerful moments for you in your career. How did you find out which moment was it where you found out, okay, I'm going to be a Formula One driver? I was actually at Barcelona testing. I was called up to Frank's office. He basically had a room in the paddock up above the garages. And uh, I was called in. And as I walked in, Bruno Janquera was leaving. He was the other guy that was, you know, we were, we were basically against each other in testing of who would get the drive uh, alongside Ralph Schumacher. And we were told that day, which was basically 30 minutes before the announcement went out to the world, who the two drivers were for Williams. And as I walked in, I saw him leaving and he sort of nodded at me and carried on walking. I was like, does that mean he's got it or does that mean I've got it? So I had no idea. And my dad was also there. He was just hanging around outside. And I walked in, saw Frank, and uh, he just said, Jensen, we've thought about this long and hard, and uh, we've decided that you're going to get the drive alongside Ralph. And Ralph was actually stood there when Frank told me. And uh, he turned to Ralph and said, what do you think about this, Ralph? And Ralph said, well, I knew that. I knew that was going to happen. Uh, anyway, Frank, why was the car not at the hotel this morning to pick me up? It was like, hey, this is the biggest moment of my life so far. You're talking about your car wasn't in the hotel ready to pick you up and bring you to the circuit. I mean, geez. Um, so, yeah, I was obviously ecstatic and said thank you and ran outside and just gave my dad the biggest hug possible. And a uh, very emotional moment. As you, as you can imagine, you, you, you probably had something very similar. Well, I just had goosebumps just hearing that from you because I've, of course, had the privilege of experiencing almost exactly the same. Also me with Frank. For me, it was a GP2 year in, in Monza. I was leading the championship and I was in the, on the Sunday going into the garage in the morning uh, just to follow the race action a little bit. And Frank was there in his wheelchair and he said the same words. Huh? Nico, we've thought about this long and hard. We've decided to give you that race seat for next year. And it's like a bit out of the blue also, you know, and I was like, oh my goodness. And it's like, it's, yeah. like, it's the craziest emotional power so I really yeah. had goosebumps just now when you said that, because it's, it's one of those moments that, of course, we'll never forget. No, and he is so calm when he said it as well. It wasn't like he got excited by it or, or anything. It just, just came out. And I was like, <gasps> <laughs> it was Williams for you as well, you know, for both of us that we started our career. You know? yeah. Frank gave so many drivers the opportunity, didn't they? But did uh, you cry when you, when you went out to your dad? Did you cry then? Or? Oh, yeah. yeah. And then I called my mum. And my mum always picks up, always, apart from that moment. No. <laughs> so I had to leave a message on her answer phone, and she was devastated. I mean, I was crying on her answer phone. And, uh, yeah, and, and then I was taken away, sat down alongside Ralph, Patrick Head, Frank, and that was it. It was live to the world that I was alongside Ralph Schumacher, and I had to say my bit. And I was like, I have no idea what I'm doing here. <laughs> Just feel lost right now. But yeah, amazing experience. And um, now starting at Williams, again, we've been through the same experience. Wasn't it also mega tough for you? Because those guys are ruthless. Huh? I mean, they don't care about emotions. Like empathy or something is not something that happens in their vocabulary, especially with the leadership at the time. Now it's all different. But didn't you have some really, really tough moments also with like Frank and Patrick? Well, they, I mean, the whole team were. Thing was still the same for when they won the world championship with Damon. So 
it hadn't really changed. So they kind of looked down on drivers a little bit because it's like, well, we won the world championship and you're brand new into Formula One. So initially it was a little bit uncomfortable, but after a couple of races, it, it definitely relaxed. I mean, to be fair with Frank, he's like, you know, if you make mistakes, you make mistakes. Patrick was the opposite. I remember Frank said to me in, in Hockenheim, coming into the pit line, I, was, I wasn't pushing hard enough and I was losing time to Ralph. And he said, Jensen, you need to push in the pit lane more. This is an important part of the race. Like, so in testing, I pushed around that little right-hander, put a wheel on the grass, lost the rear, and drove it into the wall Whoa. and ripped off the front wing, yeah. And I had to walk back to the paddock, which was quite embarrassing. And the first person I saw was, was Frank. Uh, it was Patrick, sorry. And Patrick said, Jensen, what were you doing? And I was like, Frank told me to push. And then Frank shouted out. He said, Patrick, it's okay. I told him to push. He wasn't pushing hard enough. He made a mistake and he'll learn. I was like, thank you, Frank. Because <laughs> Patrick can be tough, right? Oh, my goodness. Really I mean, all in all, of course, I also am super thankful. It was a wonderful experience. But I have an example. It was my second year where it was the first race. And it's after Quali 1. So between Quali 1 and Quali 2. And we qualified. I had Alex Woods. We qualified, I think, 15 and 17 in Quali 1. So it was really bad. Like, it was a bad situation. And Patrick comes to my car. He pulls open my visor. And he shouts into my car, you are going to put us out of business if you continue driving like that. And walks off. And I'm like, I'm this, I mean, I'm like, holy shit. I'm trying to focus on qualifying. <laughs> This was like, this was hardcore. Oh my God. I'm so serious. I'm in the middle of qualifying. But somehow it worked because I was P6 after that in Q3. So I did, exactly. an epic, <laughs> I did an epic qualifying session then. But I also, I mean, I found that, that like toughness also quite, quite extreme because I'm a more sensitive kind of person also. And so it's more difficult to deal with that kind of like fierce uh, lack of empathy sometimes. But anyways, all in all, it was a wonderful experience, of course. Yeah, I, I agree with Patrick, but I think he always had a reason for what he did and he probably wanted to see how you would react under pressure. And you reacted well. So you, you, you know, you won his, uh, his love, I'm sure, after that. So, yeah, I mean, I'm exactly the same as you. I need to be nurtured a little bit more probably in a team than other people. I think Sebastian Vettel is probably the same. You know, you, you want to feel wanted by your team, don't you? You want to feel like, you know, they want you to be there. They want you to succeed. And, and sometimes if you don't feel that, it, it does hurt a little bit. And, uh, and for me, I, I never drove as well when I didn't feel like people wanted me to be within that team. You need to be loved. I need to be loved. Yeah, I do need to be loved. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So, oh, and then coming back to Williams, it's my first opportunity to thank you so much for the beautiful nickname you gave me. Do you remember? What? I mean, you, you're bringing it up. So I wasn't going to bring it up. Yeah. What do you remember what nickname you gave me? I gave you my, my fiance's nickname. Well, actually, my fiance's name, which is Brittany. <laughs> Do you understand I, how much suffering that caused me? How many social media memes and everything else there was? The, the, the best memory I have of using that nickname was in Japan, in Lexington, Queens. I was in a, a, a table in the back, and you walked in, and you waved. So I went, Brittany! And you didn't react with a smile on your face. I don't think you were very happy. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't find it too amusing. No. <laughs> you were fine after, but I'm very sorry about that nickname. I'm sure you've called me many things over the years, so um, just maybe not to my face. <laughs> but I can. You know what? I can pay you back at this stage, though. You know why? I have another funny memory from another bar in Japan, 
about six years later, 2016. So as all of you listeners know, we are, I mean, high performers, but we also do like sometimes to have some fun and even have the odd drink or two. And so here we are in, in Japan, in uh, Tokyo, and it's the most legendary shot bar of the city. And here's this F1 reunion in the shot bar. And there's this, stop me if you don't want me to tell too many details. No, no, go for it. It was 2013, by the way. 2013. It was that long ago. Okay, 2013. So here's this big, huge drum over the bar. And the legend has it that if you take uh, one of those, like, one of those big spoons and you hit the drum as hard as you can, you have to give a shot round to everybody in the bar. Yeah, so a couple of drivers did that, all good. Here comes Jensen. Yeah, and I see him, like the spoon, he's like, who needs a spoon? And the fist goes back all the way there, and it's like, wham! <laughs> Do you remember that moment? Yeah, I, I, my, my knuckle still remembers that moment. Is it still missing? It, yeah, it's dropped. It's <laughs> dropped still, yeah. Uh, the, but the worst thing is that it would have been fine, but Felipe was, Massa was holding the drum still. So it didn't move out of the way. So I just hit something solid. Um, so yeah, that hurt. And I remember actually, I was, I was, I must say, I was pretty drunk. It was just after the Korean Grand Prix, which is a horrific race for me. So I got pretty drunk. And, uh, and I remember though, as soon as I hit the drum, I was like, I broke up my hand. <laughs> and DC looked over at me and DC likes to have a drink or two, but he was the same. He was like, Oh, JB. And he, he went and got some ice immediately and put it on my hand. I went home. I think you guys carried on from there. Uh, yeah, we did a few more hours. Let's say it that way. So. <laughs> I remember being being ill in the toilet with my hand in the air with a broken <laughs> hand. Just, it was like the worst night ever. Um, and then the next day I went for an x-ray and they said, it's broken. They said, we've got to put it in a cast. I was like, I can't put it in a cast. I'm racing. In four days, I'm in an F1 car. So I had to drive with a broken hand. But um I remember that the worst moment of that was Nico Hulkenberg walking up to me and shaking my oh, hand. Oh, yes. And I completely forgot. No, oh, my goodness. And he did he has the hardest. He has the hardest handshake in the paddock, huh? Yeah. And he just destroyed oh, my hand. Shit. He took me to... I was down on my knees, basically, after that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, <shit. laughs> Yeah. And the team, I was with McLaren, they were like, well, don't race this weekend. Because my teammate at the moment was, uh, at that time was Checo. And they wanted to get Kevin Magnussen in my car to compare them to see who would get the drive in 2014. I was like, no, I'm not going to sit out a race so you can do a test between drivers. So I said, I'm, I'm racing. And it was the worst decision of my life. It was a horrific race. <laughs> I was in so much pain. You were at the front somewhere. And I was fighting for points eight or ninth, I think. But I got points. And I beat my teammate, which is always a highlight. <laughs> Let, let's go back a little bit to your career. So the first yeah. win... Man, there's so many similarities between us. It's crazy. The first win, seventh season, 113 races, and like so, and so many setbacks also along the way. Like, how did you deal with suddenly not being able to win anymore, as you all, as we all do in the categories below? Like, wasn't that also like really some hard times there, like mentally for you? And I, I, I see some. I mean, there were some quotes like from your time with Benetton that you would mentally. Uh, really let your head drop. And even you spoke a little bit about depressive feelings and things like that. Can you take us through some of those tough moments? Yeah, I mean, Williams for me was actually a good year because I couldn't really put a foot wrong because I was young, inexperienced. They expected me to make mistakes. But I didn't really. The car was easy to drive. It was a really easy car to drive. And then I went to Benetton and it was really, really horrible to drive. 
And I was up against Giancarlo Fisichella, who was like the king of driving bad cars. I don't know how he did it, but I, I really struggled against him. And my driving style just didn't work with the car. And in terms of engineering, I had no understanding of a racing car. Terrible. And I didn't learn at Williams because it just worked. So I had no understanding of how to get myself out of a hole. And I would finish a race near the back. And the car was slow anyway, but near the back and way behind my teammate. And, I, you know, that would haunt me for days after the race. I wouldn't, you know, think about it in the evening, get over it, wake up in the morning refreshed. I would think about it for four or five days and it would haunt me. I'd feel massively low thinking this is it, this is the end of my career. And that went on for a year and a half, really, Benetton. And then into the, into the second year, which was, it became Renault, the team, alongside Jano Trulli. It didn't help having Flavio, you know, trying to put me down as much as he possibly could when I had a bad race. Monaco, I finished seventh. And with the biggest blisters ever, because the power steering failed uh, on lap three. Uh, and, he, and he basically just said, what, were you looking for a new apartment in Monaco? And I got out of the car, my hands were bleeding. It was that bad, but he didn't care about those details. But uh, it never made it easy, because it was always very public when I had a bad race. So it was tough, and I needed my friends, my family around me to help me through that. Not to blow smoke up my ass, but just to remind me what I had achieved before that. So it did take time to a bit of an engineering shift within the team. And then I felt a lot more confident working with the guys uh, and I could get back on track. But those years were really, really difficult. I wasn't thinking about, I'm not winning. I was thinking about staying in Formula One. It was that bad. Then when I moved to BAR, everything was just great. Walked in, felt so at home. I never felt at home at Benetton. And I felt so at home and just loved the atmosphere within the team. As you know, you were there for quite a few years as well. Um, so... I, from the word go in 2003, the only issue I had was Jacques Villeneuve as a teammate. You know, he, he basically said, you should go back to being in a boy band. And he said in the media, so I was like, oh, great, this is fantastic. The team are great, but I've got this teammate who has no respect for me whatsoever. But after a few races, it, it, it worked out well and we were, we were good friends. But um, from then on, it was like a yearly got better before, we, before I won my first race. But it was still a long, long time before I won my first race. But at least I could feel progress. You know, there was a pole position. There was, you know, 10 podiums in one season. So I felt that it was coming. So it wasn't such an issue then. Yeah, it's interesting how you, again, touch on the how important it is to feel loved, not only from the team, but even from the fans at large, you know, for, us, for us to be able to perform in the car. As you just said now, like in Benetton, there was no love from anybody. And it just really hurt your performance as well. And then it all changed with BAR. And that's probably like one way of explaining also Sebastian Vettel's performance in, in the last couple of years at Ferrari. Just absolutely no more love from Ferrari at all. So no more love from the team, no more love from Italy at, at large. I mean, like zero. And you just like, you can't perform under those circumstances because mentally you're just not there. And it just, uh, it's interesting, this, the, the importance of being in the right mindset huh, and getting the love to be able to perform well in uh, F1 or in sports. Yeah, you know, most of these drivers that are racing in F1 are extremely talented. You know, they can be very quick on their day. It's just a lot of them, it, it's down to whether they're in the right frame of mind. And I think we're all a little insecure when it comes to what we're best at, and which is strange. It shouldn't be the case. You know, we should be very confident in what we do. But there's always a little bit of insecurity there. You, you, I always question myself, even, even if I was doing a great job. So very weird. Uh, and I don't mind saying it. You know, it's not a weakness. I think it's, it's good to understand your insecurities and, and I think it helps you get through them and perform better. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's such a big thing which people don't realize. But for every athlete, every sportsman, 
the mindset has to be right to perform. Yeah, of course. So let's go back into that first win that you finally got then in the wet in Hungary. How was the feelings on that day after finally getting that win? Yeah, it was a mixed mixed weekend really because we I blew up an engine in practice and back then it was a 10-place grid penalty. That was your first year, right? 2006? Yes. Because I remember the first race was Bahrain. Yes, indeed. Of the year and you got the fastest lap. Yeah. Um, see, I'm not that old. I can still remember stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, I remember Saturday blew up the engine, had a 10-place grid penalty for the race and I qualified fourth, so I was 14th on the grid. But also, Fernando and Michael, who were both fighting for the championship, they both got penalties for stupid things. I mean, they were messing around with each other, mind games going on, and they both got penalties. So they started back with me. It rained. The Michelins worked better than the Bridgestones. We were on Michelins. Michael was on Bridgestones, but still, he fought so hard with that Ferrari throughout the race. Uh, and was able, I was able to fight through the only person that was in front of me and was performing similar in terms of lap time was Fernando. Would I have beaten him if he didn't have his issue in the race? I don't know. But we were on very different strategies. As I said, the pace was good. Uh, running in second, and then he had his wheel nut fall off, and he ended up at the barrier in turn two. From then on, it was it was just bring it home. You know, a 35-second lead. Uh, but weirdly, you know, everyone says you first win, it's you just want to get it home. You're worried about every rattle, every noise. Yeah, I was worried about that, but I also wouldn't want it to end. You know, at that point, I didn't have a car that was going to win multiple races. You know, I wanted to really enjoy that moment and savor it so much. And uh, the finish definitely came too soon, but loved it. Such a special weekend to see so many grown men cry over a sporting event uh, in our team, in a Honda so passionate about motor racing. <laughs> the Japanese guys huddled, crying, like, crying, like, High-pitched crying. <laughs> it was wonderful. Um, so, And also the president of Honda was there, so it was uh, the perfect uh, celebration. I want to go into a, a fact that I just myself actually found in Google. You won seven out of your 15 races in races where they were affected by wet, by wet weather. So that's how, almost like close to half of your race wins were all affected by wet. And I, I certainly remember that for me, you were... I mean, you're one of the best of all times, and especially in, in the wet weather conditions. Uh, I, wouldn't, I don't know if you can say now top five, top 10 or whatever, but certainly somewhere there. And for me, it was probably my greatest weakness, actually. So there were like on complete opposites. Um, what the hell was your secret of being so, so damn like, fast and never making any mistakes huh? in those changing conditions where every lap things are difficult? And if you put your tire off the dry patch like five centimeters, you're gone in the wall. What was your yeah. like secret of being like so uh, so extremely good in those conditions? Well, it's, it's difficult talking to you about this. Obviously, a, a world champion as well. I don't know. I think I didn't drive with my eyes as much or as memory. You know, muscle memory. It was more feeling in the moment. I don't know. You know, I was never the latest breaker. I was never the most aggressive driver. I was I was more of a feeler when it came to driving. You know, when I look at the the throttle and the brake trace of someone like Lewis, we were completely different. You know, he would he would come into a corner, he would hit the brake pedal as hard as he could, and then he would always come off at the same rate. And as soon as he's done that, the throttle pedal would go on, always the same, exactly the same. He would never modulate, it would just be the same rate, and everything would be done with the steering wheel. I don't know if you ever found that with Lewis, but I was the opposite. I would modulate the brake and I would 
I would try and keep the steering as smooth as possible and then modulate the throttle. So completely the opposite to Lewis. Maybe that's why he's won eight, seven more championships, maybe eight this year, and I've only won one. Um, but uh, maybe that was why it helped me in those mixed conditions. You know, in the extreme wet, I wasn't anything special. It was more the mixed conditions that I loved. You know, when you arrive and you really don't know what to expect. I remember 2010 in Shanghai. You made the right call. We stayed out on slicks and everyone else did. It was us two and Kubica that stayed out, just the three of us. And uh, I don't know where you, you finished third in the end. Yeah, I was leading a long time until I messed up and I, I went I was, wide and you passed me. Yeah, and uh, you, finished on, you finished on the podium. I finished right? third, yeah. The yeah. first podium. Yeah, yeah, third, behind you and Lewis. Yeah, so you made the right calls as well. You know, for, for me, it was, it was about feeling the track and, and making the right calls, not jumping too soon, as a lot of guys did. And with Lewis, yeah, he would jump too soon. I, I, he wouldn't now. He wouldn't make the same mistakes now. He's learned a lot from, I think, from both of us and just being in the sport for such a long period of time. But um, with Lewis, yeah, most of the races that I beat him in were, were wet or mixed conditions. And uh, so you're mentioning, uh, you mentioned this presence. Do you think you had a very good ability to be really mentally present? Because my weakness for sure comes from mentally that I would lose myself in, in fears and worries too much in those, in those situations. And that takes away presence of being in the moment. Of, and in those conditions, that's where you need most presence of all. Because it's where you need to be the most precise of all and where you cannot allow yourself one single time of going over a limit. So you need to go as close as possible, but not once over, never. And that's, uh, yeah. that, that I found very hard. So do you think you were mentally extremely present also in those, in those conditions then? Yes. And I, maybe racing jet drivers have to be stupid. So we, you know what I mean? Maybe we don't, if we think about the dangers, that's a weakness. I don't know. I mean... Who knows? I, I definitely became more of a thinking driver at the end of my career, and that's when I knew it was time to leave. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I just I loved finding my feet every time I hit the brakes, and I think that's why the, where the modulation really came into me that helped me a lot more than someone like Lewis. You know, he'd always pound the brakes and possibly lock up and run wide, whereas I would always probably be a bit more cautious and modulate so I could feel where the grip was rather than seeing where the drier part or, or wetter part of the track was. So, yeah, but I, mem I, I also remember 2016 Brazil when it was wet. It was the worst race of my life. I got passed by Fernando, my teammate, three times after, you know, he kept making mistakes, having to repass me. And in that moment, I was scared. I was driving scared because I was thinking, this is my last year in F1 and I don't want to crash, which is not a nice feeling and not a nice place to be. And, but that's when I knew it was time to leave. Well, you see, so that probably was my weakness because I was always worried, damn, I don't want to crash now <laughs> again, again in these mixed conditions. <laughs> so it's like a repetition also huh, that puts you in a negative spiral. Like I repeated to myself, these are my weakest conditions. I'm going to struggle as hell here. And you yeah. repeated the opposite and you knew that it was your greatest, greatest condition. But, so. But then you, you under pressure and qualify, you know, you would always do a great job. No, I, of course. I, I would struggle. Unless I had the car that I felt 100% comfortable with, I, I couldn't get the best out of the car in qualifying. Yeah. Well, no, of could. course, of course. Yeah, yeah, we all have our strengths and weaknesses. And I, certainly yeah. qualifying was one of my absolute strengths. I mean, I think I, think I did uh, 31 poles against Lewis's 33 over our duration as, as teammates. Yeah. So I was, I was too short, on, too, only two off him in terms of pole positions in all that time, if I remember more or less correctly. So definitely that was one of my... Key strengths, yeah. 
Um, yes. For me, it was not. I remember in terms of points, we were very similar over the three years, but I only had one pole position in three years and we were teammates. I think he had eight or nine or yeah, something. Yeah. So it was definitely not my strength. Yeah. And of course, the fact that it's difficult to overtake in our sport then, then makes that difficult, of course. Huh? But then that's when strategy and time management and yeah. fuel management came into play. And at that point, people weren't really doing it so much. Now it's all given to you by the engineers of what you're supposed to do and how much fuel you can use and all that. We didn't have that so much. I, I, well, in the early, in, in sort of 2010, 2011, I don't remember the engineers telling you what to do. It was more you had to go by feel. Yeah. And I loved that. Let's go to, to Braun, uh, to the Honda days. Uh, no, to the Braun days, actually. Of course, your, your greatest time in F1. So probably, I mean, Honda pulls out. You thought your career was over, right? Yes. Yeah. And I, I mean, what a roller coaster. Huh? And then do you remember the moment where you suddenly realized, okay, actually, I've got to drive? Well, I, I remember hearing news. I just got back from Lanzarote, where I went for two weeks fitness training. Now, we always go that a little bit extra in terms of fitness. And... I was at the carousel waiting for my bags, all excited about the season. And then my, Richard, my manager, called and said, it's not happening. They're pulling out. And they spent so much money on this oh. new car. And so I understand. And they said, well, it's the crisis. You know, it's hit Japan really hard. So they're pulling out. I was like, okay, what options do we have? And he said, well, there's a seat at Toro Rosso, but we got to find money to bring. I was oh, like, oh, shit. Yeah, go, going from running really well at Honda to, to bringing money to a team that isn't really going to you know, it's not going to, I'm not going to reach the goals that I, I want to in my career. I won one Grand Prix. That's not enough. I want to go after the World Championship. So I immediately called Ross and he said, yes, this is the case. We're trying to work our way around him. We actually had two people that were interested in buying the team. And then Ross went quiet and wasn't calling us back. I was like, <clears throat> okay, what's going on here? And it's because they were working on purchasing the team themselves so they could have the team and run the team themselves. And it worked out very well for Ross when he sold it to Mercedes. Um, so it was a very good call on his part. Anyway, so then I found out that it was it was happening. I was like, awesome. Really excited. I was like, so do we have an engine? And they said, <laughs> was well, no we engine. to Mercedes. We spoke to Mercedes and they're willing to give us an engine, but uh, we have to get it signed off by Martin and uh, Whitmarsh uh, from McLaren. I was like, okay. So he signed it off, all fine. Fantastic. Let's go racing. Oh, but it doesn't fit. We've got to put a spacer between the chassis and the engine. So when we went racing, we had a spacer between the chassis and the engine, and it was still that competitive. We think that the engine was probably a second quicker than the Honda engine we did have for that season. So it all worked out perfectly. Um, I actually remember going to the first race and qualifying on pole that evening, seeing uh, Ron Dennis in Nobu in Melbourne. And he just looked at me and shook his head and said, you're so lucky. I went, what do you mean? He said, I made it happen for you. I made that engine do happen for you. Right. Okay. Awesome. Thank you very much. Um, but he was gutted. He was so unhappy that we were really competitive because McLaren was struggling, wasn't yeah. it? So, but yeah, good times. Lots of special memories. What a roller coaster. But it also goes to show that being in the right moment in the right time always plays a role as well in, in any big success. Huh? It's just there. It but does. Of course, you can also go looking for it and put yourself in the yeah. positions to be able to have a bigger chance of being in the right moment at the right time. Yeah. But you just need that luck as well. Yeah, I mean, we can choose. If we're performing well as a driver, you get to choose kind of where you want to be and you think it's the right place. It's like when I went to McLaren after Braun, it was the right decision. 
I have to say, I know that you, you were at Mercedes, but it was the right decision to go to McLaren. They ended the year, should have been with a win, but they had the failure with Lewis. And when I got there, it was a great team. The only reason why Lewis or myself didn't win the world championship is because we kept taking wins off of each other. You know, if it was the Sebastian Vettel, Mark Webber situation, one of us might have won the world championship. So, yeah, it was the right call. But then three years later, it wasn't the right call. <laughs> you know, Mercedes was the right place to be. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we have so many similarities with our career. We both started at Williams. We both got our first win with the same team, basically different name. And we both won the world championship with the same team, but a different name. That's very true. So you won uh, in that season, then you won six of the first seven races. So you were like, no pressure uh, starting the season, no expectation and flying through the first seven races, untouchable. And then I like to dig into the difficult moments also, because huh? I think yeah. that's always very valuable for the people who are, who are watching. I have a few quotes from you then. Before in this podcast, you were saying, oh, winning was like a thrill and people were crying and this was amazing and I never wanted it to stop. And now I've got new quotes from you saying, winning was the opposite of mega feeling. So much pressure. Anything but winning was just a big failure. Yeah. Winning races is usually awesome, but, but fighting for a championship, it was actually in the end just a big, all just a big relief. I mean, there was just so much yeah. pressure and, and everything. Can you, and you didn't win any more races that year, huh? You won the first seven. Yeah. And then, of course, also the car development. I mean, yours, you, did, you had no development. Yeah. Red Bull was like going like that. So that plays a big role. But certainly also mentally, you're leading the championship now. You are the absolute favorite. Everybody's expecting you to win. There's a big yeah. change there, isn't there? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I won the first race and to be fair, no pressure at all on that race. But then the next race, you're like, I have to qualify on pole. Okay, I've qualified on pole. I have to win the race. Okay, I won the race. Next race, I have to qualify on pole. And anything but pole and a win then is, is a failure. Do you know what I mean? Because it's not as good as what it was last weekend. It's, it's a nightmare. And, and I didn't have a coach and I should have had a coach. I've never, I've always been like, I know myself best. I know this category better than anyone. I don't need it, but I should have had a driver coach to tell me it's not always going to be this straightforward. You're going to have difficult days. And it's those days that really will make the champion, make the champion that you are. So I went through so many races of this feeling of I have to win. I have to win. I have to win, putting massive pressure on myself. And I did win, which is great. And then it came to Silverstone, the race that I really wanted to win. And I didn't even get on the podium. I finished sixth, I think, in, in that race. To be fair, it was weird because I suddenly could breathe again because the cycle had been broken, if you like. But also it, it took away that, that tension, that stress that I kind of probably needed. I was on my toes, you know what I mean? I was, like, I was pushing myself so hard to achieve and suddenly when I didn't achieve... I could breathe and felt more relaxed, but I wasn't performing as well either. And then I was, it was the fight to try and win again. And then you start overdriving and you start pushing too hard. And even when the car can't win, you still think I should be able to win. Rubens went on to win two races that year, which really hurt mentally. One of them was at Monza. And I remember after the race, congratulating him. And then I looked at the data and I was like, Hang on a second. We had a gentleman's agreement that you guys weren't going to run more camber on the rear. I know that. On your car. And you pushed it by like a lot. And I said to Ross, I said, if we're going to race, we've got to race fairly as teammates. And I remember him coming in the office and having a right go at Jock, Jock Clear, who was running Rubens' car. Uh, it didn't change the result, obviously, but it, it really, you know, he made sure that after that, 
the cars had equal treatment. You know, we would push the boundaries the same amount with the car. Uh, and then it was, it was a fair fight to the end. But no, it was, it was really tough seeing the Red Bulls improve the way that they were. And we didn't really develop. We had a different front wing at one point, And that was it. It was the only new part we had on the car, which was really tricky. And then it came to Brazil. I was like, I have to do it now. I can't leave it to the last race. The pressure was just building way too much. I had journalists saying to me, what, don't you want to win this world championship? I was like, that's the worst question I've ever heard. And what do you say uh, to that? I know. And then it got to Brazil and my teammate was obviously Brazilian, Rubens. And they're so supportive, aren't they, of their own, the Brazilians, uh, which is fantastic, so patriotic. But I would come out of restaurants in Brazil and there'd be a ladder outside the restaurant. So I had to walk through the ladder to give me bad luck and things like this. And it was just building and building and uh, got to qualifying and I just did terrible. I was 14th on the grid, I think. And to be fair, we ran the wrong tires, but my teammate Rubens put on pump. The only saving grace was that my other championship rival, Seb, was back in 17th. So it wasn't so bad. But I remember going to the bar that evening and I had a beer and I said to my dad, I have to win this tomorrow. I have to win it tomorrow. And I got it into my mind that I had to win. And I did. You know, for me, it was the best, one of my best drives ever, that, that race. I only finished fifth, but at that moment in time, it's probably not far off what the car could achieve. But I had to win it at that race, and I, and I did. And the funny thing was, you know, on the grid before the race, the crowd were booing me. And all the journos were like, give me a hug, the British journos. Giving my support, them, them giving me their support, and then after the race, I look at the crowd and they're cheering me. It's like, guys, make your mind up. I, I, you know, it's the whole, the whole um, camaraderie and, and support of their own. I think, but uh, yeah, a very, very special weekend, a traumatic weekend mentally, and really drained me. But a very special weekend, a great way to win the championship. It's crazy, huh? Because you also say how winning the championship at first it wasn't like this this thrilling ecstasy of happiness, it was more foundationally based on just relief yes. in, in the first moments. And it, it was for a while after that. I mean, I remember in the evening, the team said, we're going out to celebrate. I said, so I went out, had, a, had two drinks with the mechanics to say thank you. And then I left. I sneaked out the back and went back to my hotel. I just sat in my room, just, just going through everything that happened. And that is not me, as you probably know. You know, I, as, <laughs> we like a good time. You, it's, you have to celebrate special moments in this sport because they don't come around it that often. Uh, normally, I'd be out until eight in the morning. But I went to bed really early and I just sat in my bed just thinking, you know, what I achieved, what I'd been through since I was eight years old, what I'd given up, how lucky I was at times and how tough it was. But I never felt that ecstatic feeling of, oh my God, look what I've achieved. It was the relief. It was like, oh, I can relax. I'm a world champion. It's not until you wake up in the morning that it really hits you and you wake up, it's like, I am a world champion. And I can forever say that. I can forever wake up in the morning or when times are tough in life, I can look at myself in the mirror and go, I am a world champion. <laughs> no one can ever take that away. Should we, should we do that together? I am a world champion. <laughs> we are world champions. Yeah. But I, I remember cool. your, when you won the world championship as well. Oh my God, that seems so stressful. Oh, 
just thinking about it. Oh, no, it will, for, without doubt, it will be the most mentally intense thing. Uh, okay, there's still the birth, maybe, like the birth uh, moments <laughs> like that. But this was longer. So it, without doubt, for the rest of my life, I think that will be right up there and potentially the most mentally intense thing I will ever experience. To be, yeah. to be in those last, after 20 years of dedicating my life to, to racing, huh? and it all comes down to these last laps, which potentially could be the last opportunity of my life to have a yeah. championship, and not knowing until the last corner what uh, my dear friend Lewis, or our dear friend Lewis, is, is going to do and how far he's going to push the limits and the boundaries of trying to take me, block me so that they can pass. Oh, my foot was shaking on the throttle pedal. Never experienced it in my whole life that a foot shaking on the throttle pedal, which then yeah. put me into a negative spiral in my head because I thought maybe I won't be able to drive soon anymore with the foot jumping on the throttle pedal. <laughs> so then it started jumping even more. Like, I mean, yeah, the most that's... ridiculous, insane uh, experiences coming through. And so also for me, like crossing the finish line, there was no happiness at all. It was like relief. It was like, I just passed that line. <laughs> I just passed that finish line. <laughs> it was just, oh, just the utter... Utter relief. Yeah. Oh my goodness. But the thing is, you've gone through something unbelievably stressful in your life and you came out the other side. That's yeah, the thing, yeah, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. Makes you feel a lot stronger after, definitely. Yeah. I couldn't even eat properly during that weekend. The only thing that would go down was Frosties. Never happened in my Frosties. life. Never happened. I don't because... you know what Frosties are. <laughs> Frosties was my childhood. Frosties was my favorite childhood food. And it's like, so. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I had Frosties all day long. So the only thing in my world championship weekend that I could eat was Frosties. Everything else, I thought it was going to come up any second. But all weekend long, and it's not like just before the race or whatever. Like, literally, this was like, it went, oh, it was, uh, it was mayhem, <laughs> mental mayhem. <laughs> it was the, in that moment you said, this is it. I've, I've come out, I've achieved what I wanted to achieve. I'm getting out of there. No, no, that no, all that, all that plays a role. Yeah, yeah, yeah. all that, uh, all that plays a role. Not, not only that. Uh, really, also, also, of course, having achieved my dream and then and, and setting myself that goal uh, and wanting to have a good exit. It was always going to be. I, I always dreamed of having a, a beautiful exit. Yeah. Because it really, I always thought it was going to be able to carry me for the rest of my life to have that high point exit. And I think feeling wise, it was definitely, um, definitely yeah. the right thing. Truthfully, do you miss do you miss driving a Formula One car? Not do you miss Formula One? Do you miss driving a Formula One car? If you tell me you can try a, a Valtteri's car tomorrow in Bahrain on a day of testing, I'll be like, wow, that's so cool. I would love to do it. Yes, but if you tell me, okay, you have the chance to be back in a season now, no, no, thank you very much, everybody. I'm uh, I'm very happy with my second life, and <laughs> that's all done, what, fulfilled. And what? Hang on, what if then you had the chance like Ruck George did? Yeah, but I physically wouldn't be able to. I would, I would, I mean, I, I would definitely have considered picking up the phone there, but I physically would not have been able to. No way I would not manage more than two laps with that car. My, my arms would solidify rock solid. My fingers, I wouldn't be able to hold the steering wheel anymore after two laps. I'm sure. Not to speak yeah. of the neck falling between my legs when I'm braking because I wouldn't be able to hold my head up. Um, yeah. like we mustn't, I mean, you know, but the, the G forces yeah. on those things and the, the challenge and the, development you need on all your specific muscles, the arm muscles or so, it's very, uh, I mean, it's very on the edge. So you need Especially to be really, barring. Yeah, yeah. All well, that heavy braking. No, exactly. And in braking, you need to push against the steering wheel because otherwise you're just going to fall into the seatbelts. So there's a lot of yeah. specific things. 
that you need to be used or no way physically no chance because i was thinking it would, about it it would be quite funny to see how far we go in an f1 car right now no two laps two <laughs> laps no that's it yeah. yeah i remember winter testing every year when we had proper downforce you do all the winter training you do as much as you want but your neck you can never train your neck enough every day every every night after the first day of testing i was in agony I had to have Mikey muscles massaging me all night long to get me ready for day two. And you used to do three days in a row. And you were hoping, I was always hoping that the car wouldn't be that reliable on the first day. So I, get, so I wouldn't be destroyed at the end of the day. But yeah, it's tough. I mean, there's no way of training your neck as, as you, you know, as you need to for an F1 car, especially yeah. these F1 cars. Uh, let's go into another interesting topic. So you've had the experience with being uh, teammates with Alonso and Hamilton. I think it's just an interesting, quick opportunity to ask you, putting them up against each other. Certainly, they're also two of the greatest of all times. How would you compare them? What was there? What, on one lap, who's faster? I think Lewis is. And then as a, as a complete driver, who would you rate I, higher? I can only compare them when I had them as teammates, really. I can't compare them now. Yeah, but that's fine. Uh, but the most complete driver was Fernando because he would find every way to be quicker than you. Lewis, for me, was a very straightforward teammate. He was really quick. And, you know, even in, you know, in testing, he could be not really on the pace, three or four tenths off even. And I don't think he was doing it on purpose. Then he gets qualifying and he would just be on it. He would always find the lap time in qualifying. Whereas Fernando would play games a lot more, which in a way I was, you know, at points in my career that I was up for games. You know what I mean? It was we weren't fighting against anyone else. You know, we were so slow that we were fighting against each other, and we played a lot of games. Some of them that I don't really want to mention too much, but yeah, oh, come we, on, one of them, one of them. Like, no, I just, yeah, one that one that's not going to cause any issues. No, I mean the the most of the time it was it was more just holding back things, holding back pace, holding back information about setups and what have you. So. Yeah, we, we understood each other and we definitely respected each other. We knew that when we did things, the other guy could take it. So I, I respected Fernando for that. And even if Fernando wasn't quick over a race weekend, he could still get a result. That was the thing. If he couldn't quite find the balance that worked for him, there was a way he would always be, you know, get the best out of the car. Whether he would just try and pit, pit early or if you're in front of him, he would try a different strategy and sometimes it would work. Um, there were other times actually that if he was behind me, he would say, oh, there's a problem with the car. There's a problem with the car. And he would retire from the race. No, <laughs> yeah. for real. <laughs> I, mean, even, I mean, we weren't we were scoring points. So to be fair, he's kind of saving the car for the next race. But he'd be like, oh, there's a problem. There's a problem. And they'd be like, no, Fernando, there's, there's no problem. Keep driving. <laughs> yeah, it was, it, was a, it was a funny time. But I really enjoyed my time with Fernando. He is an extreme talent. In, in many ways. Um, for him to go off and do Le Mans, to, to race Dakar, to do Daytona, I mean, fantastic, fair play to him, but very, very different categories, and he was very strong in whatever he drove. Having both of them as teammates was very special because you just knew you're up against the best. And when you did beat them, it meant so much more. That is true. That is true for me as well, as, especially now with Lewis going on for winning even his eighth title or what. Every year, yeah. I look at it and I'm like, wow, okay. <laughs> I mean, uh, I knew he was fast, but now being statistically the greatest of all time, of course, that, yeah. that adds even more to being proud. 
Yeah, it's pretty cool, isn't it? Yeah, that is, that is pretty damn cool. If it's okay, I wanted I, I wanted to because um, I yeah I, I wanted to ask if it's okay to touch one more time on a on a little bit more well on probably the most sentimental matter. So we both also had our fathers supporting us a lot in sports and being really close and being a guiding hand and and showing us the way and everything, which I think we're both very very lucky. But then um, yeah, I mean you then suddenly had the terrible situation of, of losing him in, in 2014. How, how tough was that uh, for you uh, um, to, of course, to, to get through? It was, it was really tough. And as you would expect, I think for anyone losing a, a loved one and a parent, it's, it's difficult. For me, it was extra tough because he, he wasn't just my dad. You know, he was my guidance. He was, he was everything to me in terms of, I wouldn't have got to where I was without him. You know, he bought me my first go-kart. He, he would work night and day to, to afford to, to help me to race. And he found the sponsors. He found the manager that helped me get to Formula One. And he was always there through my F1 career. And he wasn't that annoying dad. He was, he was like your dad. You know, he's in the background. He know, you know, he knows you know what you're doing. He's in the background, but he's there to listen if you need to talk to him. And uh, he was fantastic like that. You know, if I had an issue with anything, he would always be there to listen to my problems, give me his opinion. If I didn't take it, that was also fair enough. And he was always there for the good times. You know, he was the first person I looked for when I had a, a good race. It wouldn't even have to be a win. You know, it's a, an exciting race. I'd look for him for a hug. And, uh, and then obviously I lost him in 2014 and racing was never the same in F1. It really wasn't. And, you know, I, I really struggled over a race weekend being without him because it felt like part of me was missing. When I got in the car, fair enough, you do your job. I did the best of my ability, but out of the car, nothing felt the same ever again. You know, I had the same crew of people. My manager was always there. Richard, who's a very good friend. Mikey Muscles was there, but we were missing, a, you know, the big part of our gang, which was my dad. So it, it really was tough and you know after he passed away in, in 2014 it was January uh January the 12th uh I went testing two weeks after and I had to really you know I had to put it to one side and go testing and focus on the season and it's probably the worst thing I did because it meant that I didn't have time to really grieve and I carried it for years uh, not not really grieving his his death and it, and it took until I left F1 before I could really spend time and think about him and cry my eyes out for days on, on end, really, um, which you need to do, I think. We all, we all take grief in very different ways and we deal with it in very different ways. Some people like grieve and get over it immediately. And maybe I should have, but I had to really focus on my career, which is what he would have wanted me to do. So when I left F1, it was a, it was a pretty emotional time. Nice to leave F1 and try something new, but I really then thought about my dad a lot more. And uh, I still do. There's still so many occasions where... I wish he was still still here and I could share moments with him. You know, having kids, wow. You know, they're, gonna, they're no, never going to see their granddad. But to be fair, there's so many stories of him and they can ask anyone in the F1 paddock about my dad and they'll have a story about him. So, he's, uh, he's, you know, he, he, he was a legend and, uh, and it lives on. And I do believe he lived life to the maximum. And maybe you're only allowed to have a certain amount of fun on this earth. And he, he fulfilled it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, um, yeah, I, I can definitely, 
I mean, I can definitely say as well that, that he was such a legend in the paddock, huh? because he was the, the greatest fan, first of all of you, but also of our sport, huh? and brought such passion into the paddock, and, and he was so appreciated by everybody. So, you know who he was the biggest fan of? Who? Your dad. Really? Yeah. No way. He was a massive fan of your dad. Yeah. Oh, that's nice yeah. to hear. Yeah. He was the driver that he, he loved watching in uh, F1. Oh, that's cool. That's nice to hear. Well, they were hanging out sometimes in the paddock also. In I back, know. Back in those days. Yeah, and he also used to know Bernie from the early days. When Bernie used to own a garage in London. Really? really? So he's got some great, he had some great stories of Bernie. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't possibly share them. <laughs> he had some great stories. Bernie tried to employ my dad, like, must have been 60s, as a car cleaner for his business. Uh, my dad said no at the time. He should have said yes because he would have had a job for life. That was always the thing with Bernie, wasn't it? Yeah. Work for Bernie, you got a job for life. Uh, yeah. One of Bernie's boys. But um, yeah, so uh, very special memories. Yeah, that was one of uh, Bernie's greatest strengths also, that he cared so much for his employees and for his team. But not only that, he also cared for his business partners. He always created trust. And I think that was a very, very powerful ingredient that Bernie, Bernie did very well. Yeah, he did. And he tried to get all the teams on board as well with being involved with F1, didn't he? Yeah. With the TV money and what have you. And initially they all turned him down. And they basically made Bernie the rich man he is today. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So. Okay. Um, so from the, the most sentimental part, of course, I would, if it's okay, we'd like to touch on the last thing just in the last three minutes that we have. Extreme E now is the next uh, big challenge where uh, I, I called you up a few months ago and, and I said, hey, Jensen, should we do a team together? Because I think it could have been a cool thing, but you weren't too keen on that one. So, uh, so I went to do my own team and then I read in the news, Jensen is joining. So how cool is that? We're going uh, to be rivals again. Um, you yeah, well, it I was keen, but it's just, I was personally trying to look for sponsors and find sponsors at the time. But it was such a difficult period. You know, you always want to uphold your, your side of the deal. And I, I just couldn't get anyone involved at the time. So it was great to see that you, you announced your team. I think it's, it's such a special category. And I think with the, t the people that are involved, and Lewis, yourself, myself, it brings a lot of eyes to the category and what we're trying to achieve. It's a fantastic racing category, uh, rally category of competition of the best rally drivers, rallycross drivers, Dakar drivers, off-roading drivers from America. It's scary how competitive this series is going to be. And there's me, who's never really raced off-road. Um, the racing is one side of it, but then there's the other side of it as well, is bringing awareness to the, the areas that have been really affected by climate change. And I know you're really, you're working hard on that at the moment, which is fantastic to see sustainability. And as I said, bringing awareness to these areas. Also, what's really exciting is that we've got scientists on board the ship who are going to be studying the areas. Um, for me, that's, that's, that's really cool. Uh, it's normally very expensive for scientists to, to actually be out there studying these areas, but they have to ship to, to base themselves on. I also, this is all, all stuff that's hopefully going to help us in the future. I really love the idea of the legacy program as well, which is basically leaving wherever we go and leaving it better than we found it, which is something right now. And it's only something small, but if we're all able to do that, it's, uh, it makes a big difference. The great thing is, isn't it? The harder our battle will be, the greater will be our power for good huh? and our force for good, because the more awareness we're going to be able to generate and the more impact we're going to be able to have. So that's very cool. So I'm excited to get going on that. 
And unfortunately, I hope to beat you, of course, as well with my team. I hope that's, I hope that's okay. I think you've got a really good chance, especially in the first race. Uh, wow. Yeah, it's a different beast, the, uh, the Extreme E-Car. Uh, I mean, I've got an off-road truck in America, but that's something very different altogether. It's just about going quick in a straight line over big bumps. These cars, 558 horsepower, all electric, they are just insane. They're a lot of fun. Uh, hopefully you'll get to drive it one day if you haven't already. I haven't yet. I will, I will. Definitely. Um, but you've, you've got a very good, you've done a very good job with your, with your driver lineup. Johan, I mean, the guy's superhuman. I watch him in a rallycross car and he doesn't put a foot wrong, which just shouldn't happen in a rallycross car or dirt <laughs> and jumps. Yep. He is exceptional. And Molly, I don't know so well, but uh, I've looked at what she's achieved. Very impressive. So you've got a great lineup. For me, I'm just hoping Michaela Zulinski is going to do all the hard work and I'll just bring it home. <laughs> um, but no, I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, a big learning curve. Hopefully, after one or two races, I'll be on the pace of those counts. Sounds good. Well, I hope, you, I hope to see you in the front anyways, fighting for wins that we fight together. At this point, uh, in the link below, I'm going to put your Instagram for your uh, Extreme E team. Uh, so you can Fantastic. click on that and follow Jensen's Extreme e team Instagram. I'll put mine as well, uh, Rosberg X Racing. There we go. All right, thank you Excellent. so thank you so much, Jensen, for taking the time. Enjoy the rest of your uh, hotel room day. Thank you, mate. It's uh, it's great speaking to you. I feel that this is the longest we've spoken ever. That is definitely the case, except for the shot bar in Tokyo. Yeah, I can't remember much of that. So <laughs> exactly. This is the only. So yeah, there's uh, there's not be strangers. I look forward to spending some time on the boat with you. Extremely. Yes, I am quarantining on that as well. So maybe we'll catch up yeah. there. Okay, bye-bye, cool. Jensen. Thanks a lot. Cheers, Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. bye.